Father God, I thank you that uh, you are Almighty God. Lord, as we sang, you are greater, you are above all, you're before all, Lord. And we just thank you and praise you for that, Lord. And uh, this morning as we come uh, to your word, Lord, um, I know I've been challenged by this passage, Lord. And I pray that you would challenge and encourage us uh, with your word as we come to it this morning, Lord. Uh, we know that your word is living and active, Lord, and sharper than a two-edged sword and cuts through our bone and our flesh and our marrow, Lord. And um, God, we pray that you would do that with our hearts this morning, Lord. You take our, our hearts that so often become stone-like, Lord, and I pray that you would uh, transplant them and make them hearts of flesh again, Lord. And um, Father, I pray that you would just uh, anoint your word this morning. I pray that you would... Uh, Replace any words that are mine with words that are yours, Lord. And we just, uh, we thank you for your word. We love your word. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So hey, uh, for you guys, just so you know, Matt's uh, managed to sneak away with his son Jonah. And uh, they had a neat opportunity to be part of uh, Hockey Ministries International. Uh, so they're on their way up to uh, Williams Lake right now. And uh, they have a week-long uh, Christian hockey camp uh, where the kids are discipled as well as learn hockey skills, and they got Christian NHLers there. And uh, I know Matt and Jonah were looking really forward to it, and uh, Matt gets the opportunity to be one of the, the coaches and, uh, and be part of that program this year. So uh, it's a pretty cool opportunity uh, for Matt and Jonah. Uh, so he's gone all this week. So if there's something you need to get a hold of the church or whatever, uh, leave a message or email me or whatever. So hey, um, it's been a while since, uh, since I've been speaking on a Sunday, and as if you may remember that I've been teaching uh, kind of slowly through the book of 1 John. Uh, so far, the book of 1 John has not proven exactly what I expected. I expected when I did a quick read of it that it would be a little more comfortable. But I'm learning that God's word sometimes gives us comfort and sometimes gives us correction and teaching and rebuke. Um, like I say, I was challenged by this passage this week, and I hope that we all are challenged and encouraged by it. Uh, so far in 1 John, we, we talked uh, about who Jesus is and what he's done on his, his atoning sacrifice, and, and we've talked about that. We've talked about um, that we ought to love one another, and we've talked about setting our aim in the light, setting our aim not to be in the place of sin, setting our course. Last time we, we, we talked the first half of chapter 3, and it begins with that, the verse that many of us know so well, behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And that great promise, and, and I don't know if you remember, but we kind of jumped to Psalm 23, and we just talked about some of the attributes of God's love, how he cares for us and provides for us and uh, is our overcomer. Today we're going to start in verse 10, and um, starting in verse 10, we start out, and it's not super comfortable. <laughs> There's something we need to know about the book of 1 John that has really struck me this week is, is I perused through, and I realized that I missed the word evident, but I counted the word no, I counted the word manifest, or to be convinced of. 32 times in five Short chapters, John wants us to know or to something to be known, to be convinced of, evident of. He wants us to know. He wants us to be able to have assurance. 
So we start out today at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever practices righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Did I read it totally wrong? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Did I miss not? Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, you guys were. I'm sure I read it with gusto. Oh, that's all right. Well, that's all right, you know. Meaning's right, wrong. I mean, yeah. So, you know, God... I, yeah, I think I just need to hit the reset button. You know the... You know those little red buttons at Staples Cells, the easy buttons? Need a reset one. Kink. Anyhow, you know, John, he wants us to know. He wants it to be made evident, and he wants us to know if we're walking in the light or we're walking in darkness. He wants us to be able to know with confidence that we are children of God and that we are not children of the devil. You know, I, he doesn't want us to be ignorant of the world and the things of the world. That's why he, he lays this out like this, if you in, in my, my mind. You know, I think it's important to remember too that as John is penning First John, he's near the end of his life. He's an old man. Some scholars figure that John may have lived to be the better part of 100 years old. I don't know quite how old, but either way, this guy, he, he saw, sat under the teachings of Jesus, and he, ha- he probably wrote this letter after 50, 60 years of ministry. He's, he's presenting to us truths that Jesus has taught him and that he knows bear fruit and are true from 50 or 60 or 70 years of ministry and watching people who are alive for Christ and those who are not. Right right off the hop, we are to know that there is only two groups of people in this world. There's only two heirs. We're either heirs of God or we're heirs of the devil. And we don't like to hear that in this world. We want to we want gray lines. We want it to be easy. We don't want this hard and fast, but he's, it's clear here that we are, there's only two groups. We're sons of God or we're sons of the devil. The reality is, he's saying, is the fruit is the evidence of the root. He's saying that there should be some outpouring in our lives of righteousness and love that identifies us as believers. Yes, we can have evidence in our lives. You know, I, I mentioned before the idea of supporting documentation. Uh, when, I, when I send my taxes into Canada Revenue Agency online, sometimes they ask me for supporting documentation, verification that what I say is true. And that's what John's talking about, verification that what we claim with our lips is true in our lives. When I think of the difference, there's, he says righteousness and love. Righteousness, we know, is right standing before God, becoming Christ-like. There's a, there's a measure of standards, maybe some morality, sin issues in our life. And we know about love, this compassion for our brothers and sisters. We know that the Lord himself describes himself as being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. I don't know about you guys, but I read this and I go, okay, that's easy. And then I think about it. The way that I'm wired is I'm wired more towards a ticky box relationship that looks good on the outside 
that maybe looks righteous. I'm more hardwired that way. Maybe not so loving naturally in my, the way I'm hardwired. I could lean, I think, more to be pharisaical. And I think of the words that Jesus used towards the Pharisees. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you tithe, mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You ought to have, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What an image that is. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, you clean the inside of the cup and the plate. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. If I just try to walk in this righteous, ticky-box type of life, I end up with this, this legalism and a heavy set of laws and religion, empty religion. And I think about what happens if I only have love, but no standards, no righteousness, no aim to live like Christ did, to live as Christ has taught me. And what happens then can be an abuse of the grace that God has given us. As it talks about in Hebrews 6. You you might say, is there a balance? I don't know if it's a set of scales. But I like how one commentator, David Guzik, said it. He said, how do righteousness and love balance? He said, they don't. We are never to let love, we are never to love at the expense of righteousness, and we are never to be righteous at the expense of love. We are not looking for a balance between the two because they are not opposites. Real love is the greatest righteousness, and real righteousness is the greatest love. You know, I'm, I'm reminded in Ecclesiastes, it tells us that, that the righteous man avoids all extremes. We can't let go of the one to grasp the other. We need to hang on tight to both. I know that, that the blood of Jesus has made me righteous before God, but my supporting documentation should have, be, have an element of righteousness to it. I know the love of Christ has set me free from guilt and sin. And my life, this flesh, should have a demonstration of love. Not one or the other, but both. Kind of challenging, at least in my heart, because I tend to lean one way or the other. He goes on, he says in verse 11, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. The message has not changed. Jesus taught it. John stated it in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. He said, Behold, I am writing to you no new command, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. At the same time, it's a new or refreshed, made fresh commandment that I am writing you. When I think of this from the beginning, I think I'm reminded to stay in the simplicity of my faith in Jesus Christ. Not to get so caught up in all the stuff that I forget the simplicity of the love of Christ and the righteousness that he's imputed on me, and live a life in response to that. It's a universal message for us as believers. It doesn't matter if we gave our life to Jesus last week, we've been serving him for 10 years, or if we've been serving him all our life and we're in our 80s. It doesn't matter. In chapter 2, he talked about this message is for the young, for the children, for the young men, and for the fathers. It's universal and true. It hasn't changed. We're to love one another. And then he changes tones a little bit. We hit verse 12. 
And he's going he's gonna to lay out examples, two examples in particular, one of one who did not show love and one who showed us love perfectly. So let's take a look, starting at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life, but this we know, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. And truth. So he first talks about a child of the devil, Cain. We should not be like the evil one who murdered his brother. If we flip back to Genesis chapter 4, we get a view of what went on. We see the account of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, 1 through 10, it says, Now Adam knew his wife, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain he had, and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at your door. God says, its desire is for you and you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I think of this account of Cain and Abel and it's interesting, you know, these guys, they, they were second-generation human beings. You know, uh, first generation was, conceived, wasn't, was not conceived, was created sinless. Adam and Eve were their mom and dad. Mom and dad walked and talked with God the way that we're sitting here together. They walked in the garden in the cool of the day. We know that Adam and Eve sinned. We know that the Lord made them close. There was no question in these two boys' life growing up if God was real. That was not even a question. No ambiguity there. Not whatsoever. If it was today, this family would be in the church. They would be part of the church. They would be active in the church. And what happened is they grew up. And one chose to love the Lord and have put his faith in the Lord, and the other one hardened his heart towards the things of the Lord, but I, I believe wanted to keep mom and dad happy. That's what I believe. So when it came time that, to bring offerings before the Lord, we see Abel, he, was a, he kept sheep. And what did he do? He took the firstborn, and he killed it, 
And then he butchered it, and he got the best cuts of meat. Maybe a beautiful rack of lamb. Yum, yum. And he brought that as a sacrifice before the Lord. He brought the best of the best of the firstborn. And the reason he did is because he had faith in God and he understood that God loved him and had a plan for him. But you know what Cain did? Cain, with, Cain took, he was a gardener, right? He vegetables and fruit and man of the land. It's like he went to the barn and just kind of reached in and grabbed three carrots and brought them with him to drop them in the offering plate. Cain brought, a, brought something out of obligation. Abel brought something out of a love for the Lord in faith. And it's interesting that from this lack of faith, hatred started to be birthed. He looked at his brother and he saw that the Lord accepted a sacrifice brought to him in faith, a sacrifice that was of the best and wasn't interested in our seconds and thirds and fourths. I'm reminded of when Phil was talking uh, last week of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm just reminded, am I bringing my all to the Lord when I say I am? Cain let envy that the Lord accepted the sacrifice with faith. He let envy become jealousy, and jealousy <clears throat> become, became dislike, and dislike became a disdain, and disdain became anger, and anger became hatred, and he acted on his anger. You know, his brother Abel probably had no reason to be scared of his brother Cain. These guys, they went walking out in the field together. He'd be, you know, going for a walk with your brother. Here, look what I'm growing. I'm going to show you something. And what did he do? He rose up in his anger and he slew his brother and took him down. He acted because he allowed hatred based out of a lack of faith in God to harbor and become anger. He didn't trim it off. God gave him the opportunity to repent. I didn't really realize this about the account of Cain and Abel until I was looking at it this week. Verse 6 and 7 of Genesis 4 says, uh, God confronts him and says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do, do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God's given him the opportunity to repent and come back to him in faith. But he turns his door, his back to it, and lets it grow into anger. You know, I'm reminded that, um, that we're to nip off our anger and our deceit and our envy quickly. Uh, as I was reading, many commentators alluded to and talked about uh, the idea of grafting plants together. And uh, so I looked it up a little bit. And so if, you're, if you have an orchard, let's say, and you live in a region that you need a tree that has a really good root system, but that particular tree doesn't actually give you a desirable fruit, what they actually do is, is when it's a small seedling, sometimes they'll chop them right off. So you've got a little root system and a small little stump. And they'll graft in the desired variety on the top. Now, it's interesting. As this heals, we now have a tree that has the, the desired characteristics of the root system, and it has the desired fruit growing on top. And it grows and it gets strong. But what the gardener must do to maintain the good fruit from coming up is he needs to snip off the buds that grow below the graft. He needs to snip those suckers off. Because if he doesn't, that will overtake. 
they'll grow into branches and they'll start bearing fruit and the, the nourishment will then start going more to those branches rather than the desirable fruit. And I'm reminded that so it is in my life that when I've come to faith in Jesus Christ that I have new life but I still have some remnants of my old life. I still have some roots. I'm still, we all know we're still in this body, aren't we? We still struggle with sin and pride and all this stuff. But I remind that I need, a, I need a prune. I need to snip off the old man so that the new fruit can, can bear forth and bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a great image. I can't wait till the day where God comes and takes the fruitful part of the tree and leaves the stump behind and plants it in his orchard. Amen. But you know, we're not to be surprised when the world hates us because the same thing happened with Cain and Abel. It was out of envy that one was accepted and the other wasn't, that hatred was birthed up. We're not to be surprised. In fact, Jesus told us in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world's already hated Jesus Christ. It's already rejected Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised if we're not always the world's best friend. No surprise. Verse 14, he starts off again. We know, another assurance, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. John wants us to have assurance of our salvation. He wants us to have assurance of our forgiveness and assurance of our victories. He wants us to know. And part of that is living the, a, a victorious life in Jesus Christ. You know, I've gone through times where I've struggled with assurances of forgiveness maybe, maybe assurances of my salvation, whatever I've struggled with that I wasn't trusting the Lord with or I was picking back up in my old flesh that I was letting that stump grow. But if you're struggling with assurances this morning, I want to encourage you, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? We know that salvation is in Christ Jesus alone by faith, as it says in Ephesians. It's not by our works. This stuff is our supporting documentation. Our salvation is by faith alone. Have we truly put our faith in Jesus Christ? I always said, Jesus, I accept your gift of atoning sacrifice for my life. Have we done that? If you haven't this morning, seek the Lord while he may be found. The word says today is the day of salvation. The Lord's been gracious. There's still breath in your lungs. You still have the time to repent before him. Secondly, I would say if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ and are struggling with stuff, dive into his word. We know that the written word leads us to the living word, Jesus Christ. And I'm reminded of what the psalmist said in Psalm 51. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit before me. Within me, cast, not, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
We need to ask the Lord to renew the assurances in our life. As we dive into his scripture, ask the Lord to restore the joy of our salvation. I would also, I would also say, commit to be in fellowship with God's people. We've talked about loving one another, loving the, it says, uh, our translation says brothers, some say brothers and sisters, brethren, the people of God. Commit to fellowship with them. You know, a, a love for God's people is a desire to be with them and fellowship with them. I challenge you to serve. I know in my life that the times that I have, the times that I feel fulfilled in my Christian faith is times of activeness. I'm active. When I, when I actually am loving my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it's when I'm arms and arms with them, doing work with them, serving. God does a really neat work in our heart when we are active with his people. It's an amazing thing that God does when he regenerates us. So we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers, but then he says really strongly, whoever does not love abides in death. We know that abiding is clinging, and the idea of a lack of love is that I've reached down into the grave and embraced the corpse again, that stinky, dirty old thing, that root system. I don't want to be there. I want to be clinging to Jesus Christ and letting him do the work and the change and the regeneration of my life. He goes on to say, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. I believe that God, as much as he hates the act of sin, it's the heart of sin. That's what God hates. You know, as we've, as we've gone through First John in earlier chapters, it's talked about abiding in the light or abiding in the dark. Where have we set our aim? Where have we set our course? The reality is, is that we all sin. He says that in First John 1, 8. He tells us that all have sinned. In, in that section of passages, it says that if we're without sin, we make him a liar. If we say we're without sin, we make him a liar. But he also says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, to renew us. I gotta ask myself and look and ask the Lord to help me to purge myself of envy and anger and hatred, the root of the murder. I like how Spurgeon said that in regards to this verse, he said, every man who hates another has the venom of murder in his veins. He may never actually take the deadly weapons into his hand and destroy life, but if he wishes that his brother were out of the way, if he would be glad if no such person existed, that feeling amounts to murder in the judgment of God. Wow. That's the truth. But then he goes on and he gives us the perfect example of what love is. Starting in verse 16, once again, by this we know, we get to know what love is. That he, that being Jesus, laid his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Our perfect example found in the person of Jesus Christ. We know well, we talk about it often, what Jesus has done for us. But we can never let go and we can never forget about these simple basic truths that we remember from the beginning. That idea that we talked about in chapter 2, that he is our propitiation. That's that great big Christianese word, but what it really means is that he has redeemed us, he has atoned us, he has paid the penalty 
for you and for I. And it says also for the sins of the whole world, it says in chapter 2. That huge gift that he has done. You know what else he's done? If we were living in the Old Testament pre-Jesus, there was 613 commandments. 613. I have a hard enough time keeping 10 straight, let alone 613. And what did Jesus say? That he fulfilled the law and the commandment. He fulfilled it. No longer do I have to bring a pigeon or a sheep or a ram or grain or wine or oil when I come to the, when I want to come and worship God because Jesus has paid my penalty. He has been in place of. In fact, he's boiled 613 commandments down to the heart of those 613 commandments, really down to two main things. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's incredible what Jesus has done for us. He's boiled it down to two things. And it's so easy to say and so hard to do to love God with all our heart and to love his people, to love those around us. But I know I need more help in that. I need his spirit's help in that. He laid down his life for us. Laying down one's life for another is not normal. We know this. You know, how often is there a house fire and people run to get out and then they get outside and to save themselves, and then all of a sudden they go, oh, my kid's in there. They actually think, often we think of ourselves first even before our children. And sometimes they perish going back in to get their child, but the first thought is of self. Philippians 2 tells us not to do anything from rivalry or conceit. I can be very conceited. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When we lay these two guys side by side, these examples, we have Cain and we have Jesus. Cain brought the bare minimum. Jesus brought the ultimate sacrifice, his life. Cain was self-seeking. Jesus was sacrificial. Cain was evil at the root. Jesus was righteous. I should say, is righteous. Cain was angry. Jesus is loving. Cain was resentful. Jesus gracious. Cain became a rival. Jesus became our friend. Cain caused and causes fear. Jesus casts out fear. In chapter 4, we're going to see that perfect love casts out fear. Cain destroyed the least. Jesus became and loved the least. Another Spurgeon quote in regards to what Jesus has done for us and how great our sins must have been. Spurgeon said, how great must have been our sins. How great must have been his love. How safe the believer is in the love of Christ. You know, I know I don't live up to these perfectly, but I have a, this is a great example of where we're to set our aim, of how we're to love the, the brother sacrificially, graciously, becoming the least not out of pride and envy. And he's going to go on here, and when we hit verse 17, and he just kind of, it's kind of where the rubber starts to meet the road. He gives us some practical stuff. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in, in truth. We are called 
to be active in our walk for the Lord. We're called to be active in loving. You know, loving Jesus and his people is going to cost us something. Maybe it's some money. Maybe it's some of our time. Maybe it's our independence. Maybe it's our position, our standing in the community. I don't know. As we look around, as, as the world is changing, as the world's becoming more and more Christ-less, I think it was only a month ago in Nanaimo that we're in our country, 15 miles across the water, that Christians, the idea of a Christian organization using a public building was outlawed. It's coming. There's going to be persecution. It's not going to be easy. But I'm reminded that God said, where my treasure is there, my heart will be also. And I want my treasure, whether it's my money, my time, my independence, my position, my power, I want them to be focused on Jesus, not on myself. I've got to remember that those, the, the wealth he gives me, the, the talent, the skills, I am only a steward of. They are not mine, they truly are his, my children. So I'm to use the things that God has given me. This has been challenging for me, this verse, because I, it's easy for me to not do a whole lot and say I love and look kind of all right and not really do. I don't know what the Lord's challenging you on about doing, but let the Lord do his work. Let him challenge you. I, we're not to love in word, but in deed. Carrying on, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn, we have confidence before God. First off, God is greater than any condemnation. You know, that is the truth. We sang that this morning, didn't we? Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. He's greater than anything. He's, he's overcome already. I love how the psalmist says it, O Lord, you have searched me, you know me, you know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down, you are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Before words on my tongue, wow. You hem me in behind and before, you lay a hand upon me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it's high, I cannot attain it. He's above everything. Sometimes it scares me when I read that he knows my words before I speak them. That means he knows the words that are on the tip of my tongue but don't quite make it out. You know, sometimes our hearts condemn us, don't they? Verse 20. For be, whenever your heart condemns us. I gotta say, I struggled wrestling with this verse a little bit. I'm like, what does this mean? Our heart condemns us, God is greater, and then if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence. And there's kind of two main takes that different commentators take. One is that the condemnation is really the spirit of God working in our lives that is convicting us of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come, and that it's vital and a good thing. Bringing us to the place of repentance so that we may know that God is greater 
The other one is the, the other take that's taken is that this is an idea of over condemnation, that we forget our position in Christ Jesus, that we forget that he's a propitiation, that when the spirit convicts us of sin, that we take it one step further and say, I'm not even worthy, I can't go before the Lord, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. You know, when I think about it, I think both of them are true in my life. I need the conviction of the Holy Spirit in regards to my sin. And sometimes I overbeat myself up and I forget what Jesus has done and I forget that his, the work is done and that I need to rest. When I repent, I need to rest in his forgiveness because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Luther said this, he said, though conscience weighs us down and tells us God is angry, yet God is greater than our heart. The conscience is but one drop the reconciled God is an ocean of consolation. When I think of God being greater, it's an awesome comfort, is it not? When I think that God is greater than my heart and my feelings, it's also an awesome fear. A holy fear, I think. It's also an awesome hope that God will change and transform and wants to do a new work in my heart each day. And it's an awesome hope that Jesus is my advocate and he's sitting in the throne room, in the judgment, in the court, on my behalf. It's awesome. And then he carries on and he says that if our heart does not condemn us, that we have confidence before the Lord. And whatever we ask for him, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. You know, when we have confessed our sins and brought it before the Lord and allowed him to wash us and renew us, we can have confidence in the place of prayer. We can come to our king of kings boldly before that throne of grace because there is not a hindrance of sin breaking the connection between me and God. Power in the place of prayer. And he says that we may ask whatever we receive, whatever we ask, we will receive. You know, when we just take that little line and we take it out of the context before and after, we can get all this, I don't know, word faithy kind of stuff, name it and claim it kind of stuff. But the reality is what he's saying here is that when we follow the commands of God, which are to believe in his son Jesus Christ and to love one another, when we have a pure heart before him, our prayers are going to be changed. We're going to be praying in line in accordance with the will of God as he does work in our life. You know, you may have remembered, I don't know, but earlier in 1 John, we were talking about three distinct tests that he's given us. He's given us a doctrine test. Who is Jesus? And the answer has to be that he is the one and only son of God, that he is fully God, fully man, that he was born of a virgin, that he walked this earth, performed miracles, was crucified for our sins, laid in a tomb, resurrected. Resurrected so important because that not only means that he paid for sin, but he overcame death. That he ascended to heaven and he currently sits as our advocate. We've got to hold tight to that. The sin test, you know we all have sinned. Have I confessed my sins? Have I asked the Lord to clean my slate each day? Am I intentional on trimming that branch that's that bud that's growing and the love test do i have love for the one who's redeemed me and do i love my brothers and sisters in jesus christ or do i still have my feet planted firmly so firmly in the in the world that that's where my love is 
I need to remember, sometimes I forget, that I'm an ambassador. I don't live, yes, our bodies live here, but this is not our citizenship on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we are ambassadors. And the point of an ambassador, when Canada sends an ambassador to another country, that ambassador's job is not to speak his mind and his feelings. His job is to speak the word of the nation who who sent him. If it's a king or prime minister or ruler, to speak those words, to live that way, to declare what that nation is sending. That is our job here on earth, is to speak and declare the praises of our Lord Jesus Christ to the nations. Because he is our Abba, Father, he's our Daddy, through adoption in Jesus Christ. Finally, verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by his Spirit whom he has given us. You know, he's given us the Holy Spirit. We talked about that before already, the idea that, that the, we've all been anointed with the Holy Spirit. That gives us the ability to discern. That gives us the ability to learn the things of God. It gives us the ability to come to God. We know that the Holy Spirit is, is, is called a comforter, a counselor. And we know that he has been sent to convict us in the world regarding sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. He's a deposit And because he has given us that, we can know that he abides in us. I don't know about you and your Christian walk. I've had times where I've felt the Holy Spirit in my life more than others, but I know he's there. I felt his comfort. You know, I felt his conviction regarding to sin and righteousness or lack thereof. I reminded that the day is coming when Christ is returning. I don't know about you guys. I don't want to fall into righteous legalism. I don't want to fall into blatant abuse of grace under the guise of a pseudo-love. I want to live righteous for Jesus Christ as I love him and his people. And I need help because you know what? I'm more like Cain than I am like Jesus. I tend to harbor anger, and I tend to harbor envy. Which really means that I'm a murderer at heart. And I'm thankful that it's by faith alone that I'm saved, but I want to live in such a manner that people can see that I am a child of God, not a child of the devil. I hope that's your prayer this morning. You know, and as we wrap up here this morning, um, we've got a couple couples that are going to pray in the back, and the worship team, you guys can come on up, and we're going to sing a couple last songs. And I don't know if the Lord's been stirring something in your heart or not, but I know that I need to be less of a cane and be more like Jesus Christ.